And please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. You'll find the notes in the bulletin. You'll find the notes in the bulletin. Luke chapter 6. I think we should begin by reading our passage, Luke 6, 12 to 19. Luke chapter 6, 12 to 19. In those days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, Simon, whose name was Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas. And James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of the people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him, be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Let's pray. Lord God, as we study your word, we ask that you would give us grace. Lord, we, we come to feed from your word. We come to see you in your glory, and Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see the glory of the Christ, your son, and that seeing we might be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. And our passage in Luke this morning is kind of a transitional and turning point in the narrative. If you can review where we've come from, starting in chapter 4, we've been looking at the, the ministry of Jesus. Prior to that was sort of the prologue, the first two chapters giving the birth announcements and the birth narratives of both John the Baptist, the forerunner, and of Jesus Christ himself. And then in chapter 3, we get a brief glimpse of John the Baptist's ministry. And then, finally, our main character is introduced, and as is characteristic in Scripture, he is introduced with a genealogy, which finishes out chapter 3. And then in chapter 4, we begin looking at his ministry. He begins with his temptation. He returns, according to chapter 4, verse 14, triumphal from the temptation with Satan And according to Luke, he returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And really, that's the next sort of section, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And what we've seen in Jesus' ministry is it's it's a combination of both teaching everywhere. I mean, the the teaching in Jesus' ministry is, is emphatic. First and foremost, he is not a miracle worker, he is a teacher. And the miracles and the signs that confirm who and what he is. And so those become the two dominant features of this section. It begins with Jesus going into his hometown, into a synagogue in Nazareth. He opens up the scroll of Isaiah. He reads Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, and self-identifies him as not only the referent, but the one who would fulfill it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, and he has set at liberty, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim 
the year of the Lord's favor. So we've got Jesus' self-identity. I am the Messiah, the Lord's anointed, the one who has come to announce this good news, the one who has come to accomplish this good news. And then the, the signs, the miracles that accompany verify that claim. And so he goes to Capernaum, and he, he heals, he casts out demons, and he's teaching all the while. And then in chapter 5... Still on the same theme, Luke now wants to start focusing on two things. One, who is this Jesus beyond this one from Isaiah 61, beyond this Messiah? And we start learning he is the Lord as Peter falls down at his feet, prostrate, prostrate. I always get those backwards, don't I? Prostrate. (laughs) You want to take the wind out of the sails of a sentence, you just get something like that wrong. Let's back that back up. We learn that Jesus is Lord as one after another. First Peter, and then the leper fall down at his feet, calling him Lord. And we see him exercise his lordship as he, as he commands Peter in his own boat how to fish, where to fish, and the fish obey. And then he tells Peter and his cohorts to, to come with him. They drop what they're doing, and they follow him. He's... He sees Levi, come follow me, and immediately Levi leaves everything. So he is Lord. We also learn remarkably he has the authority to forgive sins on earth. Now this is good news and this is important. Not only is Jesus the one who will accomplish the forgiveness of sins, not only is he the one who announces the forgiveness of sins, but Jesus has the authority to forgive sins on earth. We also, in chapter 5, get introduced to a, to a new character in the narrative, and that's the Pharisees. They will become the chief enemies, the chief opposition to Jesus. And, and sadly, when they're introduced, they're introduced in a sort of hopeful light. They've come, in chapter 5, hearing the reports of Jesus. They've come interested. They don't come as his enemies. But then when they... Here, Jesus forgive the paralytic. They grumble to themselves quietly. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, speaks to them, does a miracle to confirm, I have the authority to forgive sins. He tells the man to rise up and walk, but the, the next time we see them, they, they move from quietly grumbling amongst themselves to, to questioning Jesus' disciples. Why does, your, why does your master eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? They're offended at Jesus' claims to authority and his claims to be able to forgive, and they're offended at the company he keeps, the way he does his ministry. It's not like the way they do their ministry. And then they get bolder still. They, they bypass the disciples, and, and last week we saw where they begin to directly question Jesus himself. Why don't your disciples fast and pray? And Jesus answers, there's something fundamentally different about what he is doing. He is the bridegroom. He is the one who ushers in a new age. And then they start directly moving beyond just attacking Jesus, looking for opportunities to attack him. So in chapter 6, we learn in verse 7, the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. And then after Jesus refutes them, verse 11, they're filled with fury and discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. So we have just seen the arc 
of, of the opposition that Jesus introduced. It starts with them neutral. They grumble to themselves. They ask questions of Jesus' disciples. They, they ask questions of Jesus directly. They make overt charges to Jesus. They start looking for opportunities. And finally, they're furious, looking for anything they can do. And from here on out, Jesus takes them head on. He's been gracious and patient. The very next time they show up in the story, Jesus will be in the house of a Pharisee, speaking to him, rebuking him, calling him a fool. They've settled and hardened in their position. This is their character arc. We've seen where they landed. So we've seen the opposition. And Luke's writing to Theophilus, who knows this story. He knows the way it's going to end. And so this next section in Luke 6 is, is in some sense, a response to that. The opposition has, has, has consolidated and formalized and hardened. Now Jesus is going to build his group. Jesus is going to call the 12 disciples. He's going to gather his team, his disciples, and will appoint his 12 apostles. And then Luke will give us the first at length sermon of Jesus. And so this text sort of bridges the gap from what we've just seen of Jesus' initial ministry. And we'll see that there's even hints and echoes of that. And it begins this new phase where Jesus begins teaching and training his apostles. So let's dive in looking at this in two points. Jesus chooses the 12. Jesus chooses the 12. In those days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named apostles. So how does this begin? It begins with Jesus spending an entire night in uninterrupted prayer. This is interesting because part of the the challenge of the Pharisees was an implicit accusation of maybe not laziness, but certainly a lack of, of discipline. Remember, they and their disciples fast and pray regularly. They are spiritually disciplined. They deny themselves. And here's Jesus, and he, he eats and drinks with, with tax collectors and sinners. A little later, they're going to call him a, a drunkard and a glutton. And even though Jesus prayer life is not the same as theirs. It is different. We've seen he brings something new, a new wine, a new age. Jesus' life is still marked by spiritual discipline, isn't it? We've already seen him at the, after the healing of the leper, right? Look back in chapter 4, I mean 5, verse 15, but even more, the report about him went abroad. Great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities, but he would withdraw. This is a practice of his, to a desolate places and pray. We saw that the power of Jesus' public ministry was fueled by the, the pattern and practice of his private ministry. And we're seeing that exactly now. Jesus withdraws, and he spends the entire night in prayer. And Luke's, Luke's emphatic on that point. He went all night, and he continued in prayer all night. I just want to stop and ask you something. Has there ever been a time where you've committed such time to prayer? I will sadly admit it's been a long time for me. Studying this passage was very convicting because I will freely admit that probably my weakest spiritual discipline is this type of pattern of prayer. Most of my prayers are reactionary. Something happens. Someone asks for prayer. We get a report of somebody who's hurt or something. You pray. Praying all night? And what Luke is showing us is the excellencies and the discipline 
and the character of this man who is our God and Savior. Jesus prays all night. And he does so when he's got an incredibly full day the next day, doesn't he? I mean, think about this. It's an unbroken pattern. He spends the entire night in prayer. And then, look at verse 13. When day came, he didn't take a nap, he called his disciples. He appoints the apostles. And then what does he do? He ascends down the mountain. He meets the crowds. He heals them. He teaches them. This is a full day on the back of an all-night prayer vigil. This reminds us of, of Jesus' response to Satan when he challenges him to make bread from the stones, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the Father, that Jesus first and foremost drew his strength on his prayer life. Now, here's the question for us. If the sinless Son of God so needs fellowship and prayer with the Father, how much more do we? One of the other things Luke is trying to... Uh, draw our attention to is, again, the humanity of Jesus. As Jesus spends the entire night in prayer, it's in preparation for a crucial decision. Now, we might be tempted to think sometimes that, well, of course Jesus knows who to choose. He's God. He knows everything. But as we've already seen in Luke's gospel, Jesus has been learning. Luke is not presenting Jesus as someone who shows up to the narrative functionally omniscient. He's, he's, he's not. He's learning. He's sitting at the, the feet of the teachers in the temple. And likewise, Luke does not want us to conclude, well, of course Jesus knew who to choose. He's God. He knows everything. Rather, Luke wants us to conclude, because of his all-night prayer vigil, Jesus had the wisdom and the knowledge that he needed to make the right choices. I mean, let me read to you what one author says on this. In Luke... Jesus prays before or during the most significant events of his life, and especially at decisive junctures in the unfolding of the plan of salvation. We may erroneously assume that Jesus had some link with God that gave him effortless access to the Father's will. How significant, then, that Jesus, the Son of God, and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, in whom God's presence is powerful to heal, must spend all night praying in order to discern the will of God. That's the way Luke's presenting this. Jesus is making use of the same resources that we have. He's giving us a pattern to follow. And what we're supposed to conclude from reading this narrative is that the, the, the wisdom and the, the, the power that follows, demonstrated in this passage, is a result of his disciplined prayer life, not a result of his functional omniscience as God. We're supposed to conclude, look at how his prayers prepared and empowered him for what follows. And then likewise, that begins to give us application, right? It's a lot easier if Jesus is just doing this sort of as Superman. But if Jesus is living this life as man for us, then, then we might need to start following that pattern, huh? If Jesus, who knows no sin, depends on prayer like this, how much more than ought we to follow that pattern? He does it in preparation for a crucial decision. This, by the way, is also a pattern his disciples imitate from him. In Acts 13, 2-3, we read, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and prayer, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. 
So his Jesus' disciples picked up on this. And after the bridegroom departed, his disciples did fast and pray at times. And so part of this we're supposed to get is to learn from him, to imitate him. And perhaps some of the lack of power in our public life, some of the lack of wisdom in our interactions with others might link back to a lack of discipline in our prayer closets. Jesus goes up to a desolate place in a mountain and he prays all night because ultimately it's not a food or it's a good night's sleep from which he drives his, his power to do what he does, but he draws him from fellowship with his father. His prayer life is isolated, it's persistent, it's focused. I mean, if we're learning about prayer, Jesus intentionally removes distractions because we know already that people have sought him out. People will try to find him. People will bug him. And so Jesus goes to a remote place for time alone with God. He, he makes the space for that. And it's another thing we can learn from that. Perhaps our prayer lives suffer because we have electronics that can beep at us any moment of the day or night. And in going out to a mountain, Jesus is, is ensuring for himself uninterrupted time of the Father. And then coming out of this, this night of prayer, Jesus draws his disciples to him. And, and Luke understands that the reader, Theophilus, and, and us get the importance of this. Why? Because Luke's writing to somebody who's already heard these things. He's writing to Theophilus that he might be confident and certain about the things that he's been taught. So when he draws his disciples to him, it says, and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. And this is a big event. This is a big development in Luke's gospel. And it has impact that reaches for thousands of years to today. Because how do we know about Jesus? We know about Jesus through the writings of the apostles. So I am very, very thankful that Jesus spent the entire night in prayer, that Jesus got it right, that Jesus chose the correct men, because all of our knowledge of Jesus in God's word is mediated to us through the ministry and the lives of the apostles. All the New Testament letters and gospels were accepted either directly because they were written by apostles or people closely associated with apostles. We know that Luke, for instance, was Paul's traveling companion. And so Luke's gospel is accepted in part because of Luke's connection with Paul. John Mark traveled with Peter. So Jesus chooses and installs the 12 apostles. Well, the first question we've got to ask is, what is an apostle? And it's a fair question to ask because the New Testament can use the term in at least two ways. There's a general sense, what we might call lowercase a apostles, or people who are sent, people who are, who are commissioned in some sense. We read about people who were not part of the 12 in Acts 14.4 and Romans 16.7, but it's, it's clear here that Luke is using the term apostle in the capital A sense. This is an office. In fact, Jesus himself never refers to them as apostles except here in Luke. They're always the 12. He said to the 12, he said to the 12. It's clear this is an office that he's establishing. And what an apostle is, here are the blanks, an apostle is an authorized and sent representative. An apostle is an authorized and sent representative. They carry the authority of the one who sends them. And we see, if you just turn a page or two in Luke to chapter 9, these ones whom he named apostles, 
What is he doing with them? Just three chapters later, he called the 12 together, verse 1, gave them a power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. These, these disciples will be sent. They will be commissioned, and they will imitate the ministry of Jesus. They, too, will proclaim the kingdom. They, too, will cast out demons. They, too, will heal. And so what Jesus is beginning between now and nine is a training program for them. And that, that's part of the new phase we're moving into, Jesus training and equipping the apostles. And he'll send them out again with the others, with others in chapter 10. And ultimately, after his resurrection, he will send them out from Jerusalem to Judea and to all the world. And they'll become the ones who will write Scripture. They'll become the ones who their testimony will be the basis of our faith. Jesus chooses the 12. I want to make a couple observations about the 12. First, these are men who are ordinary and unlikely. Ordinary and unlikely. Jesus does not choose from, from amongst the elite. doesn't choose from the, from the upper crust of Jewish society. In fact, in Acts 4.13... In Acts 4.13, when the, when the Pharisees are dealing with the apostles, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. Uh, it doesn't account for all of the apostles. We know that, that Levi or Matthew was a tax collector. He, he could have had some education. But certainly many of these men are just common fishermen, everyday people. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul writes this, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And so when Jesus assembles his team and he assembles his cabinet and his ministers and his representatives, it's striking to us that he, that he chooses from the hoi polloi, the common people, ordinary people. And the reason for that is so God gets the glory. Because if you go back to Acts 4, they were astonished that Peter and John were uneducated common men. And they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. See, if, if Jesus had chosen people who were recognized by the world as wise, the intelligentsia, the elite, then their success could easily be attributed to them, right? But these men who are going to shake and move the world, these, these men who will all but one of them die a martyr's death, th these men are ordinary. God chooses ordinary people and ordinary things. And when he assembles his team, his apostles... They're fishermen. I mean, let's just go through the list. Simon Peter owns his own fishing boat. I won't say much about him now simply because of how prominently he plays in the story that's unfolding. But Simon, by the way, is always first in the list. There's, there's four different lists of the 12 apostles given in the, the Gospels and in Acts. And they, there's certain characteristics about them. They usually go, well, they, not usually, they always come in three groups of four names. So even amongst the 12, there's sort of inner circles and inner circles. And Simon Peter is always the first name on the list. He's clearly the first 
of the apostles. And in Luke's gospel, henceforth, he will be referring to him as Peter. Then, next comes Andrew, Peter's brother. Now, if you read John 1, it's actually Andrew who introduces Peter to Jesus. And Andrew's doing that a lot. Andrew is constantly in the gospels bringing people to Jesus. It's Andrew who finds the boy with the loaves. It's Andrew who brings the Greeks to Jesus in John 12. We get the James and John. They're brothers. They're part of, Jesus, um, of Peter's fishing crew. Now, Jesus had a nickname for them, the Sons of Thunder. Apparently, they had a fiery temper. I mean, turn over to, turn over to Luke chapter 9. I mean, chapter 10. No, 9. You'll, you'll get an example of why this is. Not only does he choose ordinary people, he chooses flawed people. I mean, maybe we're also tempted to think, okay, he chose ordinary people, but he chose the most morally pure. He chose the most morally um, untainted. No, he didn't. He chose at least two disciples who would deny and betray him. These guys of fiery tempers, in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him, and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him, but the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. So the Samaritans are saying to themselves, because remember there's all this conflict between Samaria and, and, and Israel, well, if you're headed to Jerusalem, we're not helping you. If you're going to validate their religion instead of our version, we're not going to help you. People did not receive him because he'd set his face towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord... Do you want us to tell fire to come down from heavens and consume them? No. They were imagining themselves in the role of, of Elijah or Elisha. And uh, they, they, this, this wasn't the way Jesus did ministry. Um, these are flawed men. They're common men. These are also the guys who get their mom to come up and try to ask Jesus, can you make sure, can you give my boys a leg up? I mean, these are flawed people. James and John, brothers. Um, and there's Philip. Philip from, this, from Bethesda, the city of uh, Peter and Andrew. Um, he's the one that Jesus actually asked, what are we going to do for food for these people when, he, when it comes time to feed the 5,000? And then some of these disciples and apostles, we, we don't actually know a ton about. Bartholomew, whose name literally means the son of Ptolemy, this is probably the same person that John calls Nathaniel. One of, one of the tricks of this is it's not in any way uncommon for people to have Greek and Hebrew names, to have multiple names, ways of referring to them in the same way that we can have nicknames for people. And so you sort of compare the Gospels together, and it's probably likely that, that Bartholomew is Nathaniel. We've already been introduced to Matthew under the name of Levi earlier in this chapter. And then we get to Thomas also called the twin or Didymus, and this is the one who, everyone remembers Thomas for doubting, but what people forget is that even though in John 20 he says, I will not believe unless I can put my hand in, he's the same disciple who when they hear that Lazarus is ill and Jesus says, let's go, and he knows there's a hit out on him, says, come, let us go and die with him also. And there's James, the son of Alphaeus, not James, the Lord's brother, or James, the brother of John. And then Simon, the zealot. You've got to understand who zealots are. Because one of the things that's also remarkable, it's not only does Jesus choose ordinary people, he chooses unlikely people. 
Zealots were terrorists. You, you can read in the book of Acts what some of the people who've led insurrections. They, they so opposed Roman rule, they would actually take it into their hands to start trying to help out. Un... And they would, they would kill, they would make, they, would, they were seditious. These, these are... These are revolutionaries. You've got a zealot and a tax collector as apostles. You've got somebody in total opposition to the state and the system, and you've got somebody who's totally been co-opted by the state and the system. I mean, I, I don't think I exaggerate when I say the difference between these people and the way they would view each other is, is like having you know, a, a Palestinian and an Israeli together on your team. This is, this is remarkable, again. And this is, again, setting up that in Christ and in his ministry, he can take people who are very unusual and unlikely, people like you and me, and we can come together. This is one of the reasons why I, I, I think the diversity within a church is part of our strength. I don't think it's good to just have, like, young 20s church and, you know, all, all these different demographics because Jesus, even starting here, is taking a motley and unlikely crew and putting them together, and the unifying glue that holds them together is Jesus. Wherever these men come from, they are disciples first, then they become apostles, and they get commissioned by Jesus to be his representatives. And then we get to uh, Judas, son of James. This is almost certainly the one else we're called Thaddeus. And finally, Judas Iscariot. It's, a, it's such a shame. Because notice in Luke's gospel, he doesn't start a betrayer, does he? He became a traitor. It's just tragic. It also does raise one other question. T turn to John 17, please. As I've tried to emphasize that Luke is highlighting how Jesus' time in prayer and his spiritual discipline is what gave him the, the wisdom and, and gave him the ability to rightly choose the apostles. One has to ask the question, knowing that Judas would betray him, did he make a mistake there? Was Judas an error? I mean, after all, the early church will replace him, right? In Acts chapter 1, they're going to cast lots and find a replacement for him. Are we to think... Jesus got 11 out of 12 right? No. No, this was planned. And in John 17, Jesus is praying to his Father. Let's just want to look at two verses. First in verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they are. And you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. He's referring to the apostles, the disciples here. Now notice, first off, he recognizes the Father gave them to him. This was not Jesus' ultimate selection, but Jesus selecting the ones whom the Father had already given him. Thus, why he spent the night in prayer. Now they know that everything that you have is given to me from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours, all are mine, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but the, they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that you may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be 
fulfilled. Even Judas, who betrayed him, was intentional. It was the right choice. The scriptures predicted the betrayal of the Messiah. And Jesus here states the fate of Judas was all according to plan. It was not an error. Back to Luke chapter 6. Jesus gets it right. He chooses the right men, even Judas. These men are ordinary and likely, but they are men who will become in time the foundation. They are not that yet, but as Jesus molds them and teaches them and disciples them, they will become what the new... Listen to some of the language in the New Testament about the apostles. Listen to Ephesians 2, 19 to 21. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The church, and again, not the building, this is just a nice rain shelter. The church is the people, we are the church, is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. What does that mean? Who wrote the Bible? In the Old Testament, the prophets wrote the scripture. In the New Testament, the apostles and their close associates wrote the scripture. The church is built upon the foundation of the word of God. That's what he's saying. That's the connection between the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. Jesus tells the 12, later in Luke, in Luke 22, 29 to 30, that they would one day sit and eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and sit on thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. These are going to be key foundational people, except for Judas. He's key in another way. But these men will become the foundation of the church. And this unlikely crew, these people who turn, Peter who runs from a servant girl, is going to boldly lead the early church, write scripture. These men will become the foundation. Now, they're just introduced now in Luke's gospel as this sort of motley group of fishermen. They're made apostles. And then we set that aside for a minute as Jesus goes down the mountain. But understand, and we understand, knowing what comes next, the significance of what has just happened in response to the opposition formalizing, in response to his enemies now, their concrete hardening in opposition. Jesus gathers his disciples, appoints apostles, does it from ordinary and unlikely men, but they were men who through his ministry and his work and his oversight and the Spirit's direction will become the foundation of the church. So he's gathered them, he's appointed them, and in verse 17, he takes them and he heads down. And in verse 17, he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Jesus now ministers to the multitude, verses 17 to 19. Jesus ministers to the multitude. And this really is kind of the wrap-up summary section. If you turn back to Luke chapter 4, you'll, you'll notice the similarities to what's going on here. In Luke chapter 4, and in verses um, 40, when the sun was setting, 
All who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And the demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because he knew, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So the beginning of Jesus' ministry has him healing everyone, casting out demons and teaching. And as we sort of wrap up this section and transition now into the molding of the disciples, beginning with the Sermon on the Plain, we get a sort of repeat of that. He came down, he stood on a level place, great crowds of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him, to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and the crowd sought to touch him for power came out of him. And again, that's, look back at 4.14. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit in chapter 5, as he heals the paralytic in those days, verse 17, he was teaching Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. So we've seen Jesus' ministry characterized by power from God to heal. Jesus' ministry characterized by teaching, by healing, by casting out demons. And he's going to do all that here in transition and setting up the Sermon on the Plain. Because he's coming down to a level place. Now, there's some discussion about whether or not this is the same, what's going to follow, and what we'll look at next week is what's known in Matthew as the Sermon on the Mount. It's possible. It's, it's, I think it's equally possible it's not. Um, if, if this is the Sermon on the Mount, then when Jesus comes down from the mountain, he only comes down part of the way, and he finds sort of a mountain plain, and he teaches there. I think it's probably more likely he just comes down all the way, and he's teaching... Um, on a level place, on, on, not on a mountain. And the reason why people think it's the same is because so much of the content overlaps, even the exact way he says it. Well, so it's, it's possible. This certainly could be a plain halfway down the mountain where he's teaching. It's also possible that Jesus, with all the teaching we've seen him do, taught the same content. And so catching one message or one sermon may be very similar to catching another. And that could also explain why the Sermon on the Mount and what I call the Sermon on the Plain here have overlapped. So the Sermon on the Plain may well be, the Sermon on the Mount may well be the same incident. It also may not. Ultimately, I think it's unimportant. Luke is presenting for us this teaching, and starting next week we will study it, but the setting is given to us here. He came down, stood on a level place, and you've got at least three circles of people You've got a great crowd of his disciples. Jesus has already been collecting disciples. In fact, from his baptism, he's had disciples. We know that because in Acts chapter 1, when they go to replace Judas, the qualifications for this new apostolic opening is this. Choose one of the men who has accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John. So Peter's saying, we, the other 11, have been with Jesus the entire time he was going in and out, starting with the baptism of John. So he's got disciples, and the disciples have been here ever since John's baptism. He's got a group of disciples, a lot of them. The inner circle of them is the apostles. You've got the apostles... You've got a large group of disciples, and then this great crowd 
a great multitude of people. And, and notice how the word's spreading even further. They're from all Judea and Jerusalem, and now we're actually drawing people from outside the geographic bounds of Israel, from Tyre and Sidon. It's unclear whether these are just Jews living there or not, but the point that is clear is the message of Jesus, the word going on about him is spreading and growing. It's even gone beyond the geographic bounds of Israel. It's these people that Jesus will teach and minister to. What does he do to them? He teaches the multitude. They've come to him. Notice, again, first, Luke mentions, and this is consistent with Luke, they came to hear him. Now, Jesus is first and foremost has a message, and we've seen that in Luke's gospel. Despite how remarkable the miracles are and striking they are, he first and foremost has a message, and the, the miracles exist to confirm the message. So we saw with the paralytic, Jesus was quite content to simply say, your sins are forgiven you. And the only reason he heals him, he says, is so that we might know that he actually has the authority to do the thing he said he had done, forgive him, Rise up and, and carry your mat and be, walk away. The miracles confirm the teaching. But first and foremost, he has a message. This goes all the way back to chapter 4 where he identifies himself as the one whom the Lord has anointed and appointed to proclaim and to teach. So they come to hear him. And they come to be healed of their diseases. Jesus teaches the multitude, and he's been teaching all those references there to all the times Luke has already said he's teaching, he's teaching, he's teaching, he's teaching, he's teaching. And he heals and cures all of the multitude. They came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. Again, notice the consistency and the power of Jesus. He's, he's able to deal with all the diseases and all the, the demonic possessions. They're not a problem. They're cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out of him and healed them all. And again, this is the mark of authenticity. Um, there, there, are, there are many today who, who claim to heal, and at least the ones I've investigated don't look like this. I have no doubt God can heal. I'm talking about people who claim they have the power to heal. And again, my, my, if someone comes up to me and says they have the power to heal, okay, let's go to the cancer ward. Let's go to the, the children's unit. I'm absolutely convinced God does heal, but we're talking about someone who them themselves like Jesus or like the apostles, has power themselves to heal. Because the biblical testimony of that is, is, is total, it's instantaneous, it can handle anything. And this is, again, that type of blanket summarizing statement. This is what Jesus did. He healed them all. The power came out of him and healed them all. He heals and cures all of the multitude. And finally, point D, Jesus is full of power of the Spirit of God. It's, it's the power that's coming out of them that's healing them. And we've already been told the source of that power. Again, I, I said this, I think, two weeks ago. Even though Jesus, being God, possessed all power and authority, he did not operate in that power and authority in his humanity. Just as Jesus, is, as God, had omniscience, he did not operate, he did not function with omniscience in his humanity. He was learning in the temple, studying. And we've been told already the source of the power was in chapter 4, verse 14, in the power of the Spirit. And in chapter 5, verse 17, the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And so again, the connection is made, and, and as we sort of draw to a close here, what do we see? The pattern of Jesus' private life was the power for his public life. 
The man who spent all night in prayer and fellowship with God comes out of that filled with power and wisdom. And that's the connection Luke's making. He's, this is the man who's constantly going back to his father, constantly carving out time, isolating himself for fellowship with the Father. What's the result? This man who is indwelt by the Spirit is filled with wisdom and power. And the apostles follow that exact model. They commit themselves to prayer and the Word. And the implication for us is the same. If, if we need wisdom, I don't know how many times people come and talk to me. They, we need help making decisions. We need to know what to do. We, I, need to commit ourselves, myself, to prayer it's the model for Jesus. I mean, somehow, do I think I have some inner access that Jesus didn't have? Now, this man of prayer got it right, and the power in which he operated was the result of his personal communion with God, his personal commitment to prayer. More important than sleep, more important than food, is feeding from his Father. I'm going to call the worship team back up as we get ready for our final song. Our, our, our high priest and our savior was faithful. He, he, he chose right. He worked hard. He, he was faithful. And so I think it's fitting that we close our message, our time this morning, singing, Jesus, thank you. Please, please stand. <clears throat> 